Hey, it's Seth Godin. In the summer of 2012, I had an amazing opportunity to spend three days with a group of extremely motivated entrepreneurs, people right at the beginning of building their project, launching their organization. During those three days, I took them on a guided tour of some of the questions they were going to have to wrestle with, some of the difficult places they were going to just stand up and say, this is me, this is what I'm making. I'm sorry you couldn't be there, but I hope this is the next best thing. Excerpts from the live event, unrehearsed, no slides. Here it is. Enjoy it. But even more important, I hope you do something with it. Thanks for listening. If someone's going to do business with you, that means they're hiring your product to solve a problem. Just like they hire somebody to fix their back or work for them. So Clay tells a story about he got hired, uh, I think it was by McDonald's, to make milkshake sales go up. And he did some research and discovered that 30% of all milkshake sales are at breakfast. Because it turns out that customers were hiring the milkshake to solve their problem, which is, how do I eat something for breakfast while I'm driving that I can eat with a straw? And if, they, if you could solve that problem, they would, you could get hired to do it. So the milkshake was the best solution that was for sale. And so McDonald's apparently made up some new kind of breakfast things that per people perceived as being healthier for breakfast. The point is, when you tell me your business, what I'm really saying is, would I hire that product or would I hire that service to solve my problem? I am not saying, do I like Kit or do I like Don? That's way down the list. What's on the list is, I heard your story. If I trust you enough, I'm going to listen to your story. Now that I've heard your story and I trust it, do I want to hire that story to solve my problem? So if you think about all the brands and events and stuff we buy, that's why we bought it, to solve a problem. And so I'm going to ask you, what am I hiring you to do? And if your product solves that problem, I'm much more likely to hire you to do it. And what it's probably going to be is to impress my boss, to impress my family, to connect with people because I'm lonely, to figure out how to feel less afraid. These are the reasons we do stuff, not because we have six widgets and we want seven. Okay? Yes, please. What if, like, how to say, how to say that you, you're offering a product that will solve the problem of lack of confidence, but you have to sell it through saying something else? Right, which is what we do almost all the time. Yeah, like, like, like for example, I, I want to be super honest with my, I'm a presentation coach. And I want to be hey, super what coach? Presentation. Okay. I want to be super honest to them to, and say I'm selling them time and confidence because most people just need to be sure that they won't make like fools of, of themselves on stage. But I can't tell them I'm selling them confidence. Right. So I don't know how to, how to be like, what I'm selling is great presentations when I really like what I care about the least of what I'm giving them. Right. And this is why All Marketers Are Liars is a bad title for a book. <laughs> because there are very few professions, some very old, where people were extremely honest about what you were buying, right? But in general, 
That's not the way human beings want to be marketed to. Human beings, when they buy a $90 bottle of wine, we have real clear data on this, think it tastes better than a $10 bottle of wine, even though we could switch the wines. So when I go to the person at the table, I don't say, would you like the expensive bottle of wine because the placebo effect will cause you to enjoy it more. <laughs> right? I have to put on the wine show in order for the placebo effect to work. Well, that's, you know, you have to make your own ethical decision about whether the ends and the means are justified. That the fact is, there is no nonfiction book published that could not be written in five pages. Right? Here's the five-page summary of what's in this book. You don't have to read it. So why do we want to read it? We want to read it because the act of reading it or just holding it makes us feel different than the information. The act of going to Bumble and Bumble for a $100 haircut may end up with exactly the same hair as the $30 haircut four blocks away, but it makes us feel prettier, so we are prettier because we walk differently down the street. So you're not going to be able to, to, to just walk up to people, tell them the actual digital truth of why you were there, and expect the placebo effect to work. It won't. That's the magic of the placebo effect. So the, the challenge here, and, and the way I've dealt with it anyway, is to say the difference between manipulation and marketing is manipulation is I get you to buy something that you regret, regret later. And marketing is I get you to buy something you're glad you bought. And that's your opportunity is to tell a story about why someone should hire you as a presentation coach that gets them to become confident. Because if they become confident, they're going to be happy to recommend you to the next person and you've achieved your goal. Does, do you understand? And so the art of this, and we're going to practice and practice and practice, is can you tell that story, not to me, but to the person who needs to hear it in a way that resonates with them? And there's so many examples of this. So how many of you have ever been to a chiropractor? Right? Why doesn't the chiropractor make you take off your shirt? Because if they made you take off your shirt and they were wearing a white smock and their hands touched your skin, you would get better faster. Then you walk in, oh, don't, don't bother taking off your suit jacket, your tuxedo, it doesn't matter, I'll just go, and then you can leave. You know, that's showing off. But it's not touching human beings in a way that we know makes human beings feel better. And, but medical practitioners screw this up all the time. I'm not picking on chiropractors. All sorts of medical practices would work better if they acted more like sommeliers and added more placebo effect stuff. And if their goal is to make people healthier, then that's what they should do. Make people healthier, not worry about the nuts and bolts level of what's happening at the molecular stage. Okay. Other questions before I go on to the next thing? All right. No. Um, now, if the thing you're doing catches on, what's to keep somebody else from doing exactly what you do for half price and everyone will move? Now, there's a lot of answers to this question. Right? There are, for example, plenty of search engines that give search results just as good as Google, but with more results per page, better privacy, less annoying ads, whatever it is, and everyone hasn't switched. In fact, almost no one has switched because the lock-in effect is really powerful. There are people who always go uh, to the same provider when they need a freelance copywriter. Yeah, please, Mark. Uh, something right after why they, why they didn't 
Lock-in effect. Lock-in. Right. So it, what lock-in says is, uh, it's just too hard for me to switch. It might be hard economically, organizationally, technologically. So once uh, Apple had persuaded a, a, an elementary school to go Mac, and then Dell shows up with a cheaper one, even though they're going to be replacing their computers, they switch. They don't switch because all their software isn't going to work. So the lock-in effect is because the software goes with the hardware, so you're not going to switch the hardware, right? But the lock-in effect is more often emotional, that you would have to admit to yourself or to your peers that you were wrong, and now you're going to switch to something that's better. So some people are immune to lock-in and they switch all the time, but lots and lots of people get locked into a solution. The question is, how do you do that? Why does Starbucks spend so much effort marketing the Starbucks card? Because there's no more money in it for them. Well, the answer is, if you're in an airport and there's a Starbucks pretender or a Starbucks and you've got your Starbucks card, I'll just go there. It's easier. It builds up lock-in. American Airlines, frequent flyer miles. They invented them because it made a huge difference for lock-in. Not because the person who flies the most needs the miles. They don't. But because emotionally, they felt like they were sabotaging themselves by not adding to some number, even though they were never going to trade in their miles for anything of value. Okay, so we're going to keep coming back again to, all right, this is going to be really hard for you to make it work. It's going to be really hard for you to get started. But are you building this house on this land, in this structure the way you want, in a way that you're going to be glad you did? Or is it a one-trick pony, and then you're going to go to the next thing? So if I look at Angry Birds, Angry Birds is a huge hit. And if all they wanted to do was make a hit and retire, it was perfect. But if they're looking for a lock-in for their next game, it's a problem. Because they never built a direct relationship with the person who plays Angry Birds. There is no Angry Birds newsletter. There's no Angry Birds universe that makes it more likely that I'm going to play a new game from Angry Birds company, Rovio, as opposed to one from their competitor. Yes, Yoni. Right. So the app market, how many of you are playing with this idea of making an app of some sort? So we can spend a bunch of time talking about this. The app market is at large, in large measure a sucker's game for a few reasons. Reason number one, no one's ever heard of you and there are more than a million apps to choose from. So it's the biggest haystack and you're a little tiny needle. Number two is once you finally get someone to hear from you, who wants to hear from you, most apps forgot to be social, or Instagram being the exception. So Instagram works because it works better if I get all my friends to use it. So all I need to do is get Kelly, and then Kelly's going to get five of you. And if one out of five of you get someone else, I go to infinity. Whereas if you make me an app of, you know, I can look up and see the stars, that's really cool. But if I'm not going to tell ten friends about your app, it's the dead end. It doesn't scale. So we're stuck with, it's a big haystack, and most apps don't lend themselves to spreading. And then the third thing that kicks in is, if you want to sell your app, you have this big problem, which is no one knows how good your app is until they give you money. And people don't like doing that with digital goods. They like doing it with other things in their lives. We don't go to a restaurant and say, let me eat here, and then I'll pay you if I think it's good. 
but we do it with digital stuff. We don't ever buy a record until we've heard it on the radio first, for free. The radio is this huge, wonderful sampling tool that made the music industry work. So the app world, we have a bunch of apps that come along and say it's free, but if you use it a lot, then you'll pay for it. That's brilliant, because free is a great sampling tool, and if they're not using it a lot, they shouldn't pay for it anyway. If they are, they're not going to fight you to pay for it, because it's giving them what they were hoping for. So that means the most important thing you can do with an app is make sure it's viral, and we can talk about and I had a, the, here I didn't call it viral on your mug, I think I called it fungal. Because I think, I think fungal is more powerful because it works in the dark too. Um, make it fungal, meaning you don't have to be famous, you don't have to be the most popular video on YouTube, it doesn't have to be the coney thing. It can quietly, in the dark, go from person to person to person, growing among a circle of people. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. And Atlantic Avenue is a really stupid place to build a house. Because houses cost $150 each, but the rent with one house is only $110. Don't build on Atlantic. So give it, you can build whatever you want. Don't build something that isn't going to work. It's just true. There's all these apps that the person who built the app thought was a good idea. And if everyone knew what they knew, it would be fine. But everyone will never know what you know. So what you can do if you want is say, no, I'm going to build an app that I have to sell straight to each person who uses it. That's the way the world worked for 100 years, right? That's fine, but then you better price it so that the cost of selling it is built into your profit. Right? That if I have to call on you, when I was selling the games at Yoyodyne for 100000 or half a million dollars each. Yeah, I went personally. I got in a plane and I flew there and it took us six months to make a sale. Our cost of goods was literally zero other than the people. But we had to charge you a lot because I had to go to all these meetings where no one ever bought from me. But if your app costs five bucks and you have to go have a meeting with someone to get them to buy it, you're in really big trouble. So maybe it's a $500 app but you can afford to do it because it's a meeting every sale costs you a hundred bucks. That works. The mistake that all these people are making, and I'll use the Al Gore ebook as a great example. The Al Gore book was beautiful and it cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars to make and it lost a fortune because other than magazines writing about how great it was, no one ever heard of it. And how many people read about an app in a magazine and say, oh, I'm going to go get my iPad, press a few buttons, pay the money, and download it. Not enough. And then once I had it, there was no reason for me to tell my friends because it didn't work better if my friends were using it. Right? So the magic of the iPad and the magic of the web isn't that it looks cool on the screen. That was CD-ROM years ago, which I used to do. The magic is it works better when your friends and your colleagues are using it too. No one wants to have the only email account in the world. It's useless. Once you have email, you want everyone to have email. That's what makes it work better. 37 Signals spends zero dollars on traditional marketing because all they need is one person in this room to use it and then those people do the marketing. Right? So I got, I'm, I'm, I'm raising my voice a little bit here because I really want to hammer this home. 
you don't, you're not entitled to the business you want. And I can help you make it the best it can be, given the constraints, but you guys are starting with no constraints. So there's this funnel. And the top is everybody in the United States, right? Or North America. And the bottom is customers who give you money. And the funnel is leaky. People drip out of it. They don't all come out the bottom. When you think about the fact that they have to be divorced, and they have to talk to a lawyer, and they have to talk to a lawyer who's charging by a flat fee, and they have to talk to a lawyer who's charging by a flat fee who knows you, the challenge you have is you have to be very cognizant of how many people are in the universe left at the bottom. And you have to price accordingly. Because if the value you're creating is really significant, and the cost of making the sale is really high, then it's not $5. Right? Then it maybe it's a $1,000 service. That there's an app that's part of it, as we talked about a minute ago. I'll get to both of you guys in a second. Um, but it has to match the funnel that you're going to be able to create for it. Now, if you're evangelical and you want to transform the way people get divorced, that's a totally different discussion. If you came to us and said, I'm going to use technology as the wedge to change the way people get divorced, and my model is mint.com, which was bought by Quicken for nine figures, then I can say, oh, there's a whole bunch of things that one could do to disintermediate lawyers and make getting uh, divorced way faster and less painful, I'm going to build a whole suite of stuff and go straight to the world so that every time someone says I'm getting divorced, the first thing people say to them is, have you seen blank? That's an audacious, big, fat, hairy thing to go after. And you could probably find some people who would give you the money to get you there, or at least have a shot at getting there. But you've got to be very careful not to do part of it without doing all of it. So if I think about the mediator, if the mediator wakes up every morning with a problem, and that's one of the things you have to think of is, what problem is my customer waking up in the morning with? The mediator wakes up in the morning and says, I need to get more of my share of mediation things. And you say to that mediator, this tool comes with a dashboard that shows back up on your screen, and there's this huge incentive for you to be able to offer because they're going to get you new clients. Then when you call on the mediator and say that sentence, Either the mediator is going to say, I've been waiting for someone to do that, or they're not going to listen to you. But again, it gets back to, do people know you? Do they trust you? Will they listen to your story? Does their story resonate with you enough that they're willing to give it a try? And then the last part of this, and then we're going to go on, is if you have a hundred of these mediators who are your customers, your job is not to find more customers for your product. Your job is to find more products for your customers. Because now there's 100 people who have said, I am willing to use technology to get more clients, to service my clients better, and to make more money. So then you sit there, and you don't say, how do I get more mediators? You say, what, else, what other tools are available to these mediators so that I can use the connection economy to do it? So I can start, for example, showing uh, bar charts and, and other sorts of information to the mediator's clients so they can see compared to other couples who make as much as you do. This is how this usually goes. And so now if you're the arbiter of community standards, you can never be replaced because you're the one who has the data. The point isn't right now. 
to answer the question. The point right now is to know that the question is essential. That's what I want you to be thinking about is you can change this to anything you want and if you want to you can open a kayaking school. That's how early in the, the deal it is. So what do you want to change it into so that you're not always climbing uphill? There's something in it that the wind is at your back. Which leads to the next question, what's the hard part of your business? If your business doesn't have a hard part, you don't have a business. I would argue that the easy part of your business, in the case of is the app, right? You can make this app in three weeks for him. The app isn't hard, and if it's 90% of what it could be, or 110% what it could be, it's not gonna matter. The hard part is finding somebody who's a middleman who will make you successful. So when I think about each of you and the business you want to create, you've got to understand what's the hard part and spend all your time on that. I constantly run into people, how's, how's your project going? Well, I filed the DBA certificate and we've been incorporated and I think I got some office space coming and I hired the guy to do the logo and they go through the list of all the stuff that doesn't matter because it's easy. They should have spent a dollar on it and moved on. Your logo is never the hard part. It just isn't. So all the time you're spending on your logo is time you're hiding from doing the hard part. And the hard part is often being known or being trusted or being able to create something that occurs that people can't live without. This is different than what is the scarce part. And scarcity is the only thing worth paying for. If you make something that is incredibly abundant and everyone has it, you won't be able to sell it. But you can create scarcity without doing something that's particularly difficult. So if James Taylor decides to put on a concert and there's only 200 seats, he created scarcity. And he can sell those seats for $1,000 each and make $200,000 in an hour. What he did that was hard was he survived being a heroin addict and he was a great singer and he did it for 40 years. That's hard. But creating scarcity in that moment was easy. So you got to think about what am I doing here that's both hard and scarce. All right. The next thing is as I use this, as it grows, as it catches on, does it become more valuable or less valuable? We think about this. We think about uh, somebody who is trying to create collectible fine art. Andy Warhol showed that you can cross this chasm and become valuable just because you're everywhere. But generally, the more times you paint the Mona Lisa over and over again, the less it's worth. There are other things that become more valuable as more and more people use them, like email. Email, right now, if it was held hostage, the universe would pay more to keep email than it would have paid 15 years ago. Because as people use it more, it becomes more valuable because we get dependent on it. So you got to think about who's someone's here who's doing a philanthropic thing in their town. Is it you, Natalie? No, Kelly. So when six philanthropists are involved in what you're doing, is it worth less or more than when a hundred philanthropists are involved? Some people, if their worldview is I like being part of an exclusive early adopter group, will think it's less valuable because there's more people in it. It's so crowded, no one goes there anymore. Other people, you can think about that. Get back to me later. Other people like the fact that it's crowded, and so it's more valuable. So we have to think about, as this project scales, is that going to make it better or worse?
first question is, uh, is someone going to steal my idea? And the answer is probably not. And as you're discovering here, as we're talking about this, there's ideas that all of you have that have great chances of working and very few of you are busy thinking about how you're going to do it. Because even though you've already decided you want to be entrepreneurs, there, it's, not, it's not as easy as just stealing the idea. So Twitter starts catching on and yeah, there's Yammer or whatever it is and people came up with variations. But in general, that's not your problem. Your problem isn't that not enough people, that no one, your problem isn't that people are copying. Your problem is that not enough people are copying. Because as you try to interact with the tribe, as you try to make a ruckus, being the one and only is usually a problem. That if you were the one and only fashion label, you'd fail. Because the, the marketplace wouldn't care about fashion. That it's Vogue magazine and competitors that make fashion work. Tommy Hilfiger wants Ralph Lauren to be in business, not out of business. So it's okay with you that, that this might move to other tribes. If you've got it right, you're going to have enough momentum that you can go faster than all these other people because they're afraid and you're not because you can have seen it from the inside. But this, the other thing that the resistance speaks up about is this. I don't want to pick one tribe because if that tribe rejects me, I will have failed. I want to pick 20 tribes because there's always another one. Right? Well, as soon as you pick 20 tribes, the tribe knows that. And they know you're not obsessed with them. And they're going to become less obsessed with you as a result. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That if you're playing the field, if you're at a singles bar, it's way less likely that you're going to get married. Because the people in that room have a different attitude about each other. If you go to the industry and say, this is it, we care about you, we are committed to you, and you work your way up in that industry, you're way more likely to convert that tribe. And then you can take the stories from that tribe when you go to your next tribe. When I talk about tribes, I don't mean uh, merely a group of people. So left-handed people, not a tribe. I can identify all the left-handed people in the world, but they don't care about each other. A tribe has to have a goal, a culture, a community. They have to care. So if I talk about gay men in America, they're not a tribe. There are subsets of gay men in America, the ones who care about you know, the Christopher Street uh, uh, history and, and go to a parade. That's a tribe, for sure. They can look at each other, give each other the, the head shake, they're wearing the same thing, they talk the same stories, that's a tribe. Now, you will always do better if you're building something in the connection economy if the tribe embraces you. Because we are hardwired to want to do what other people are doing. And if we see that the people in the tribe are into it, so you, how many of you know about Tom's Shoes? Right? So, it's a very clever idea, buy a pair of espadrilles, and he gives an identical pair to somebody who's never worn a pair of shoes in their life. Why doesn't everyone in America wear Tom's shoes? Because Blake didn't start with everyone. He started with a very specific daily candy reading, urban dwelling, 29-year-old woman who wears a certain thing and recognizes other women like her. Which was brilliant, because you only have to get 100 of those women before you get a thousand. Because the tribe is in sync. You can't ride it forever, soon they're going to go on to the next fashion. So he has cleverly said, now that I got this, I'm going to go 
talk to this group of people. That is the place to start. But you have to define the tribe. The tribe might not be how old they are or where they live. It might be that they're big fans of vintage Rolling Stone records. You can't tell from looking at someone if they're that kind of person, but you know that they're all reading the same magazine or the same newsletter or the same whatever. Thank you for listening to The Startup School with Seth Godin. Listen next week when, on Episode 4, Seth discusses the difference between making something cool versus making something that works. He also talks about one of the best-run restaurants in New York, the Thai Place in Queens. To learn more about Seth or to subscribe to his daily blog, please visit sethgodin.com. You can also find his books in any bookstore or on Amazon.com. This has been an Earwolf Media production. Executive producers Jeff Ulrich and Scott Ackerman. For more information, visit Earwolf.com.